So tell me, Nate, who do you see this podcast going to? Who do I see this podcast? Well, anyone that wants to listen can listen to it, of course. Um, but especially people who are called to take care of others. Lead others. That can be in the church in particular. We'll talk a lot about things in context of the church and relationships to pastors, to people, um, but also uh, volunteers that are called to shepherd others, to lead others. But it could apply as well to anybody that's a manager or a business owner or even a parent. I think it could relate to anybody that is thinking about leading other people. I know we talk in Girl Track a lot about everybody's called to be a leader and how Jesus, if we're following Jesus, we're going to be a leader because Jesus was a leader. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot of shepherd-hearted things in our lives that can help everybody in their walk of life and following Jesus and how we treat others who are following us as we follow the Lord. So um, I know I hear you talk I've heard you, I've been along the journey with you for quite a while now. It's been <laughs> have. 30 years. I'm like, as we're prepping for this and grabbing our cheaters, it's kind of funny <laughs> to go, we've come a long ways since yeah. our 20s. Uh, but I have watched how you have worked with people, ministered to people, and sometimes it's like, okay, Nate, it's really cool, but like, I get it, but when when is our turn? You know, that kind of idea. But um, I love how you have always cared and looked for others and what God is doing in other people. And so I guess I think it would be good for everybody who's listening just to hear it from the beginning and talk to us about what you feel, you know, your history, the things that you've done in the past and how it relates to being a shepherd hearted leader. Like maybe start from the beginning yeah. of how we started out and specifically yeah. you started out in ministry. Yeah, we're calling it shepherd hearted leader. And uh, where does that come from? Well, everything begins with how we were formed or shaped. Um, for me, um, I have the honor of coming uh, in, into a family where my mom and dad loved people in the home and at church and everywhere we went. Um, it was as if my dad and mom wanted to help the world all the time, like 24-7. And what I mean by that is my dad pastored for a while when I was younger then he worked a full-time job in a manufacturing company, and and yet he volunteered in the church, was an elder at the church. My mom and dad had uh, connect groups or uh, fellowship groups that were in our house. My dad would have young men that would come over. He would mentor almost every night of the week. They would eat dinner with the family, and my dad would spend time helping to mentor and disciple young men. And so I just came up around that environment. And then when it came to church in particular, I, uh, I came underneath great leadership. Our pastor, Wayne Benson, talked a lot about um, what a true pastor was, and he displayed it. He modeled it for us. I had a youth pastor that, uh, his name was Jeff Grinnell, and Jeff, Jeff loved the students, and he was with them all the time, and he was a true shepherd. He loved to be with people and smelled like the sheep, in a sense. And so I came out of that environment, and I was also trying to figure out who I was. And I used to say something when I was a little kid. I was like, I'll never be a leader. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> this is hilarious. Uh, I mean, my mom and dad have told me stories that when they would sing happy birthday to me, I hid under the table. Like I didn't want the attention. And so um, even when I went off to college, my first two years of college, I went for business administration. And uh, I figured I would make a difference in the business world. And that... Um, when it came to church, I volunteered as a youth leader. 
and during those two years um, in community college, when I was doing my business degree, my great love became taking care of high school students. And, uh, and I finally reached the point where I realized I wasn't happy and fulfilled in the program that I was in, so I transferred to North Central and um, became a pastoral major. But my deal with God back then was that uh, I'll be a business administrator at a church. I didn't think of myself as speaking or being in a prominent vocal place. And so uh, God had his way of pulling that out of me. So I volunteered at Emmanuel my first week in Minnesota, oh. 1991, and volunteered as a youth leader and uh, just poured my life into doing ministry as a volunteer. And then I was asked to do my internship at Emmanuel that summer and uh, that next summer. And so I did. And that was the summer of 92. During that time, I led a missions trip. Yeah, I remember and, that missions trip. Yeah, you do, because you were the female youth leader on that trip. Yeah. And uh, we poured our life into helping these students have a good experience. And there's some, we'll have to tell the stories someday, on the, yeah. even on the podcast. But the idea of development of my heart, my leadership skills, what they were for, was really formed out of this idea that um, it, w- it was about the students or it was about the people that I was serving, not about my career. And um, God promoted me. Um, it wasn't something I chased. And so I ended up, was asked in April of 1994 to come on staff at the church right after you and I got married. Yeah. And uh, and we said yes. And I stepped into that space as an assistant youth pastor for about 18 months. And then I was asked to lead the youth ministry. And while I was leading the youth ministry, um, I had a lot of mistakes I made and a lot of growth. You know, I thought that I had to be a super speaker and because all the people I saw were great speakers and I thought that that was what I would have to do and I was trying to project myself into something I wasn't. Now, do you remember what uh, Pastor Mike Olson, who was over the youth ministry back then, what he said to you about yeah. speaking and Yeah, that? so he, thank God for like mentors that will speak into your life and have the courage to say what they're thinking. Because he heard me speak, it was like a Sunday school class that I was doing a sermon in. And I was done, I was frustrated, I was sweating, I'm sure I wore the people out. And uh, Mike pulls me aside and he said, Nate, I've never had to say this to anybody else. He said, but you need to preach more like you pray. He said, because when I hear you praying, you are passionate. You don't have to pause and think about words and what you're going to say. It's just natural for you. You need to preach like you pray. And so uh, I don't know that I learned to do that right away, but over time I learned how to communicate, love people. And it reached a point in, uh, in our journey because we had served under other leaders that were good leaders. Some of those things that we had seen modeled became natural for us to do as leaders. And, um, but then I reached a kind of a, uh, a limit to that and I remember as a youth pastor when, when we had, um, I think it was a couple hundred students, and, and I loved everyone. I knew every one of the students. I knew every one of the youth leaders, but I was dreaming for more, and I felt like God said we were going to grow. And in order to grow, God spoke to my heart, and I'll never forget it. He said, um, you, I'm not going to give you any more students until you take care of the ones that I've already given you. And at that point in time, um, God began to rearrange the paradigms 
of how I personally cared for people. I needed to learn to care for leaders and train leaders who would care for those students the way I did. And so it began a journey for me of learning how to develop um, volunteer leaders to think like pastors um, and to lead well and moving from wherever they were in their journey and how they saw themselves. Most were inadequate. They thought they weren't good enough and I needed to build them up. And then I also needed to equip and challenge and then release yeah. things. And we did a thing, you remember when we... Oh, win, build, send. Yeah. And we we uh, raised up a lot of leaders and sent them out. Yeah. How many people do you think went into full-time ministry out of the youth group back oh, in the day? Oh, man. You know, I, it's hard. I, I have never stopped to really count the number. I know the number of youth leaders that became pastors and missionaries and the like was probably over 50. Um, um, I do remember that part of the journey of me learning to equip and release leaders involved um, being specific. So like... um, we we took attendance on Wednesday. Remember, you oh, put yeah. you built the Excel spreadsheet yep. for attendance, and uh, and um, felt and, like we needed to close the back door. Yeah, and we felt what we noticed is that on Wednesday night, all the student, all the leaders sat together because the leaders liked each other while the students were off doing their thing and you got your pot smoking group in the back there's no leaders nearby and you got your rebels over and another part of the the room and and there were no leaders nearby so we had to uh spread the net over the whole flock and actually give i have to say as one of those leaders like before you and i were together (laughs) i hung out with the leaders it was like so much fun to have a young adult community within the youth group and i remember when i met you i'm like who is that? Is he like a student or is he like a leader? Because you were always hanging out with the kids. So I, I, yeah. I they didn't even know. But yeah. Yeah, and then we figured it out. Like that wasn't really a good strategy to help yeah. disciple and no. mentor and shepherd people. No. And so I, it, they didn't know what to do. So I had to come up with a way to help them see it. So we actually took that entire Excel spreadsheet of list of regular attending students and we put a leader's name next to every one of them yeah. and spread the net over the whole flock. And that meant that the five superstar Bible memory kids that tithed and went on mission trips didn't have, you, could, you couldn't be a youth leader and have five different youth leaders say, that's my kid. Yeah. We needed to make sure it was spread throughout the whole the youth group. And, and, uh, and we learned, I remember, do you remember when I did a youth leader meeting and, uh, and we did them on Sunday afternoons after church and we had dinner together up in the cafeteria or the... I don't remember when we called it back in the day, it was Fellowship Hall or something. And while we're eating, we set up the sanctuary where the youth group met on Wednesday nights, just like it was a youth group. Our worship team was out there, the lights were on. And uh, after we were done eating, I said, all right, everybody, I want you to go down in the sanctuary and sit where you usually sit on Wednesday night. And everybody went down and guess what? They sat right by each other. And I said, then I came in and I actually had a chart where I showed the whole room and I said, now I, I walked around the room and said, now notice this whole section of 15 rows. There's no youth leaders here. So not only did they have names on a spreadsheet, but we wanted to apply that in the context of our services. So we actually spread them out. They had assigned zones and areas to sit on Wednesday nights and they were responsible. Then we went through a service where I literally told them what I expected them to do throughout service. Worship with your eyes open so you know what's going on with the students around you. And if somebody is loud during the speaking, you're the one that's responsible. And 
the introvert leader had a hard time with that. Well, we had to coach them up. And then we also supplemented that with uh, leaders in the hallway that were kind of bouncer type leaders. And we call dogs. them junkyard, junkyard dogs, dog the JYD crew. Yeah. Yeah. So anyhow, that that was a journey of figuring out not only because I did a lot of things where I cared for students, but I had to figure out how to help others do that mm -hmm. as well. And the youth ministry years, really, we grew on that. Of course, after we began to make that shift is when we grew by hundreds of students. And, um, you know, there were some of our special nights. We had over 1,000 students here, and we had, on average, over six to 700 students every Wednesday night. And it was a, an amazing journey, and that led me to go to North Central, where they called and um, asked us to come and, and teach there at the university and teach future youth pastors. And through a process, I said yes. I said yes to the Lord and uh, went down there, and I spent 10 years at North Central, the first 18 months as a youth-focused um, person. And then uh, the, the rest of my time for 10 years, I was uh, in the administration uh, and finished as a vice president. So how did there. you feel that during that time? I mean, I remember, but maybe those who are listening don't know what you went through because can feel like, wow, that's a really cool opportunity to go uh -huh. speak at a college and teach at a college. Yeah. But it was it was different when you're leaving one occupation, basically, yeah. to go to a whole different career. Yeah. Uh, I remember being at church, we still attended Emmanuel, and people would come up to me and just say, I believe your husband Nate's going to be in ministry again someday. And I'm like, he is in ministry still. He's just not ministry here. Yeah. You were speaking and doing things, but it was kind of a lonely time. Maybe yeah. you speak to that. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I mean, I at that time, I never envisioned doing anything different. So it came out of the blue. It was a phone call from the president of the college, who also was my mentor, and he said, Nate, I'd like you to think about coming to work at North Central. And uh, I said, no way. And he said, would you pray about it? And I said, I could do that. And literally three days later is when we resigned. So it was that clear that it was God speaking to us, not because of the opportunity, but because we heard the whisper. And for me personally, I, um, I just said yes, not knowing what I was going to. It felt like Abraham and God saying, go yonder. <laughs> well, what does that mean? Uh, and you just follow the voice, the call of God. And so leaving that also meant leaving the team because over 10 years as a youth pastor, we had developed teams of people that were doing the work of the ministry. So all those leaders that I developed, uh, some of them became staff members. And, um, and I had a robust team. I mean, we had three or four full-time assistant youth pastors when we left, and we had two TV shows, and we had uh, a master's commission with 40-some students in it, and and I had uh, an, a, two administrative assistants that were doing a lot. So, I mean, we had I a remember. robust <laughs> team, and then we shifted to North Central, and it wasn't changing jobs. It was changing careers because of what we stepped into was – the education world that had a different scoreboard for success, a different timeline. My first week on the job at North Central was um, the last week of the semester and everybody was packing up to leave. And so like, and they didn't have an office ready for me at that time and they were doing building construction. So I went in and I shared an office with four people. I didn't have a phone. I didn't have an administrative help. I didn't have a job description. I didn't have anything and I was just lost. I remember feeling like I was standing on the, on the uh, sands of the seashore and the tide was going out and I was left alone. 
And so during those times, I mean, even like three weeks in, they kicked me out of the uh, temporary office. So I was in and there was no office and I officed out of home and I opened the door and, and, you know, our kids were young at that time and there was like four-year-old Timmy is out there and <laughs> that was my new team. And so I felt like alone, <laughs> alone, alone. I just had to trust the voice though through that period of time that he knew what was best for me. And, and then I kind of began to find my legs in that new world later on, but listen to the same voice I had when I was a youth pastor. Yeah, so a lot of times you'll we'll hear you talking about the voice, following the voice, and then also about the uniform, and yeah. talk about how the voice and the uniform in this situation yeah. going from one yeah to the other. Yeah, you know, people are are interesting. We are we like rate people on their importance based on what they do sometimes, or their platform or their job, and. Um, it's not always healthy. Uh, sometimes we esteem people for their profile, but we don't really know the person. And sometimes we dismiss people that are quality people, but they don't have the same profile. So we might walk by them. And I experienced a lot of that in that transition from Emmanuel as a youth pastor into the college because I had this word pastor in front of my name. I was Pastor Nate. And, uh, you know, we had a... Uh, our youth group was called JC's Place. We had a TV show called JC's Place. And so there was a profile attached to that. And people had either known us in the church, in our youth ministry, they'd known and seen us on TV, that kind of thing. And, and so I, my status was related to what I led. And once I let go of that, I lost that honor in some respects or people's esteem for me. Because I remember even the day after our last day at Emmanuel's youth pastors, we couldn't get a babysitter. <laughs> and for 10 years, we had no problem. Everybody wanted to help Pastor Nate, but now I didn't have pastor in front of my name, and now it was just Nate. And, uh, and it's just kind of the way it works. And so when we went to the school, now all of a sudden I'm teaching students. I didn't have the titles of some of the other professors and teachers at the school. I wasn't um, as welcomed there as I was in the place I was leaving. And so in a sense, I started over at the bottom of the ladder again. Now, the climb is the same in the sense if you're humble and you walk the route of serving, Jesus promotes. And so over time, I did experience promotion at the, at the university, but it was a longer climb. And it wasn't based on on the old factors of what I had led before. And I remember during that time, um, I, I, it was brutal, and I would process with Dr. Anderson, who is now my boss, the president of the university, and I'm like, how do you make sense of all this? Because like, I would go speak at youth camps and conventions, 5,000 students, and I was Nate, and the former youth pastor still, and then I was Nate, the teacher from North Central, um, but then I would come back home and nobody knew what I was going through and it could feel lonely. And, and he experienced a lot of it as the president of the university and, you know, in and out of different places, they might've respected him because he had doctor in front of his name or they respect him because he was a president, but not in every arena that he went into. And he told me a story and his story has stuck with me. And I've used this in a lot of my messages about the uniform. And he said, you know, Nate, um, people salute the uniform, not the person. 
and he gave a story of a younger man who went to med school and uh, got his medical degree, doctor, and yet he in an arrangement with the military. So um, when he graduated, he instantly became an officer in the military. And so he graduates, and his first day on the job, he puts his uniform on, and he walks onto the base, and people stopped and saluted this guy. And he had never been saluted before. And he's like, what's going on? Well, they weren't saluting him. They were saluting the uniform and his rank in the military. And, um, and Dr. Anderson looked at me, and he said, Nate, people used to salute you for the uniform that you had, but it wasn't a saluting of you. They were saluting the uniform. And you hung that uniform up and you jumped into another organization. And he said, um, so you can't find your comfort or your identity in the salute from other people based on the rank. You've got to learn to find your identity in the call of God and the whisper of God and being closely related to who you were born to be. Because the day will come even if you get higher ranking and you know, when I left North Central, I was a, a vice president. Um, and then I stepped into a role as a senior lead pastor. And in that transition, the re- reality was um, people were going to salute the uniform. But if that's your identity, you try to keep it. Or you feel threatened when someone doesn't respect you. But if your identity is in God, then you don't have to worry about whether or not they respect you. And you uh, did a great job just watching you all those years, embracing the tough stuff. We learned a lot when we uh, left Emmanuel's youth pastors and yeah. then went to you went to North Central. Uh, basically, we did learn who's our friends, what ministry, like you said, a lot of people are like, you know, crying that last Wednesday and yeah. going, you can't leave. I'll never be able to live without you, Pastor Nate. And by the next week, they're moved on to the next guy. And yeah. Like, and, <laughs> They had moved on pretty yeah, quick and yeah. trying to find a babysitter. But then it gave us perspective, too, mm-hmm. about knowing when God calls us to do something, it's not us. Yeah. And it's not about us. It's yeah. about the people that we're serving and not yeah. to hold on too tightly. So you traveled a lot and went to see a lot of churches in those years, 10 years at North Central. Mm-hmm. And uh, you noticed things about people getting attention. Who got the attention? Yeah. Talk about that. Yeah, so... Um, one of the benefits of being at a university is you're like Switzerland, you're neutral, and you get to observe a broader group of people um, without be- being a threat. So I wasn't a threat. You know, sometimes pastors are um, gauging their value by comparison with other pastors. Um, but when I was at the university, I didn't have any of that. But I would pop into places. Would you say to a threat, they would worry that you're going to hire their staff or right. something like uh, that? Yeah, or even like how many people do you have in your church? And there's this comparison kind of uh, thing that um, it just happens. It's not healthy, but it just happens. So anyhow, when I would travel, though, um, I would speak in district councils and different venues, and I was around pastors and leaders from the upper Midwest. North Central has... 11 districts that oversee the university. So primarily I was in and out of those districts. I went to other places in the country as well. But when I would step into those spaces, um, I observed dynamics of lonely people 
who didn't know how to how to um, care for those underneath them. So if they were a senior pastor, they would have staff underneath them, and they didn't always know how to care for their their pastoral staff. So, for example, if I if I would go to a convention, it was inevitable inevitable that I would have one on one coffee meetings with other youth pastors. And now that I was at the university, these youth pastors were like sharing their story because they felt like it was a safe place. And many of them felt like they couldn't share that same information with their senior pastor for fear of losing their job. And so there was this insulation um, of core concerns that if they're not dealt with, if they're not um, processed in a healthy way, they become unhealthy later on. And so I watched and observed that even the rank piece of it based on your position determined how free you were to develop yourself or to think about real life issues or family issues and that kind of thing. And even during that period of time, I, you know, I had finished my master's thesis and I did a project on, um, on help helping youth pastors be in a peer mentoring group because I wanted to provide safe places for them to talk. It was all signed off by their boss, their senior pastor and everything, but they would process and develop and they had a trusted, safe place to talk without leaving the church. We wanted them to stay in the church, but they needed to talk about real life issues. And many of them stayed longer than they would have uh, otherwise. Um, many of them developed the dream for the future and they had a, a safe cadre of friends that would help them. And so we did that in several districts, it's still going on in Minnesota. And the idea was is to have a safe place for the conversation, not based on rank, um, but also saying, hey, you might be a future senior pastor someday. Yeah. You might be somebody that. So I was very interested in providing space for them to stay in the game without losing heart because sometimes they never would get picked to t take the place of their boss yeah. or their boss, you know, senior pastors have a hard time letting go. And, um, and so you've got stuck people on staff, not sure about their future. And I kind of leaned in and listened to the stories of people and what their families are going through. You know, the spouses of, of pastors were, um, it was a private place of pain sometimes because their their spouse often had been a husband or, or, um, or a wife. The spouse was like, you're in all the staff meetings. You're, you know all the information going on. And Meanwhile, we've got kids, and I'm taking care of kids while you're gone all the time, and you're not making much money, and and so the spousal dynamic also is a big deal. So it's not just the person and the title; it's also about what was going on in the person's family. So I leaned in on that and listened, and began to write about it, began to think about how do I help people at every stage of their journey so that they stay in the game. Yeah, and and of course, back then you were working with a lot of youth ministry majors who eventually would be in churches. And it was super interesting, I think, to you to help them find healthy churches to go mm -hmm. to and have healthy leaders. And so coming out of North Central, God led you and us back to Emmanuel about 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, talk about how that history impacted how you lead today. Yeah, so <laughs> it's interesting. In 10 years of time, I had about year number seven where I thought, um, I'm never gonna be a pastor. I'm never going back to the church world. I've been in the school higher ed for so long that it seemed like that was the trajectory for my career. And so um, I, you know, I had started my doctoral program during that time and 
I wanted to develop me. I never thought that I would um, be a president or, or something like that. I just felt like, man, all my opportunities in the church world are gone. Nobody rem- remembers me as a pastor anymore. <laughs> now I'm a school guy. And so, but during that time, um, God began to drop different things, breadcrumbs, if you will, in my heart and in your heart. I remember um, you asking gently, asking questions like, would you ever go back and pastor again? And what did I say? Only if the Lord led. Yeah. I mean, and I think we had different things pop up, but we finally got to a point you said, only if it was Emmanuel. Yeah. Yeah, nothing else would really bend my heart except for Emmanuel. And we really never thought it was a possibility. Yeah, and at that time, um, our our the founding pastor of the church, Mark Denyes, who pastored for forty three years, he had his son Dwight w- was going to become the lead pastor, and he did. So that role was already filled, and um, so we didn't even think that that was a possibility. But we were trying to lean in and listen to what God was saying. And meanwhile, I was still preaching. I was still traveling. And, uh, and then the time came when Dwight, Pastor Dwight, um, asked me to preach on New Year's Day of 2012. So the church was open on New Year's Day? Yeah, the church then. open on a holiday. What yeah. an idea. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I remember God gave me a prophetic word for the church in a way that I had not felt in a very long time. Yeah. Like God was stirring me. And so I preached it on that day. They combined their services into one on that New Year's Day. But it was something very personal between me and God. I'm like, what's going on? And that following week, I went out to lunch with Pastor Dwight. And during that lunch, he shared with me that he knew when his last day was. And he was going to complete his term. They had three-year terms at the time um, as lead pastor. And that would be in March of 2013. And, uh, And he said, and my job is to be like Abraham's servant to go find a spouse for his his son. And he said, and he, you know, he goes through the whole biblical narrative part of that. And he said, and so that servant went, found uh, a spouse for his son, Isaac. And, and uh, he said, but then it was on that person to accept it. And he said, I believe that you're called to be the next pastor of Emmanuel, but it's going to be on you. To, to accept it or not. And at that time, I didn't see it coming and I didn't feel it. I went into consultant mode. <laughs> I was telling them, that's never going to happen. And uh, and then we met once a month for the next five months. And he said, where are you at with it? And by the time we got to May, I had processed it with you. And it was a long journey for us because mm-hmm. we were like, do we want to pick up that cross? Because we, we knew... Uh, what it would mean, what it would mean for our kids, what it would mean for our life. And so it wasn't at that point in our stage of our journey where we're like, wow, we could become the path. It was, do we want to do that? It had more of a realistic view. Of yeah, that. it was more realistic. It's yeah. true. And uh, still, it was a little harder than I thought. <laughs> was it? Why do you think? Oh, it was just being the senior leader. Once you accepted and came back, it was a lot harder on the family yeah. than I realized it would be. But keep going. Yeah. Keep so no. Yeah. I don't mind you talking on this podcast. So, so by the time we got to May, he turned to me at, at that meal that I was in with him, and he said, "Now, I'm going to tell the board next month my plan." And he said, um, "They're they're going to begin to pray about my successor," and he said, "I only get one shot." 
to give a name to the board. He said, I can't choose it, but I can give my endorsement. And he said, I need to know if you're in or you're out. And uh, at least for that part of it. And we prayed and uh, said, I'm willing to let my name be talked about in the boardroom. It wasn't in the church yet. Uh, Okay, let's go ahead and do it. And one thing led to another. And um, they met the following, they met in June. And Pastor Dwight shared with the board what his plan was. And he encouraged them to pray about the next pastor. And and he said, the next pastor will come from one of three places. It's going to come from current staff, former staff, or somebody completely outside that experience. He said the best case scenario is current or former because they know the culture of the church. They'll know how to lead and they'll get us. And he said, I want you to pray about it and come back with a list of names next month. And when they all came back at the following board meeting, I've only been told this, but everybody only had one name and that name was was mine. And, uh, and they all when went around the table and they shared it. And then Pastor Dwight said that was my name. And then I heard later that uh, Pastor Mark Denyes, the founder, also agreed. And so, which blew me away because I didn't see that coming. And, uh, and so that led us back into the church. And then we went through about eight months of transition before we actually stepped in in March of uh, 2013. Yeah, it's such a great time. And I'm so grateful to be back. There are so many things that have happened in the last 10 years being at Emmanuel, different challenges in the community with COVID and George Floyd and different things, leading a legacy church, how complicated that can be. Um, There's so much to unpack here about being a shepherd-hearted leader. What do you think one of the greatest challenges are for people serving in ministry to have that shepherd heart? One of the greatest challenges, well, first of all, is ourself. Uh, and where do we get our security from? Um, you know, if I am under authority, it's easier for me to be over others in authority. But if I'm not underneath, I'm not being shepherded myself, then it's really hard to turn around and shepherd others. And unfortunately, there are many for various reasons that are not under authority in their own heart and then they feel the pressure to essentially be God to others underneath them, that they're responsible, they have to be perfect, that they have to do everything right, that any kind of criticism is, is going to bring the whole thing d- down. And um, I think the biggest challenge is having that internal security between you and God, yep. not eternal security, internal security, just to be able to say, you know what? I'm safe. If God has called me to do this, I can do everything. He's given me the strength to do it. And then figuring out how to partner with God in that and not let all the pressure be on yourself and allow God to be the one that truly is the shepherd. This is his church. Yep. These are his people. We're just under shepherds, under under his leadership. And I like you always say, uh, if you didn't claw to get it, you don't have to claw to keep it. Just That's knowing right. that. God is the one who called us, and he's going to equip us and give us everything we need. That's right. So can you explain to those who are listening what biblically is a shepherd-hearted leader? What is a shepherd-hearted leader? Um, And biblically is the big deal with that. You know, if you look at Genesis to Revelation, there's various metaphors for 
leadership that you will see. You'll see the body of Christ. You'll see the word head over the body of Christ, which is Jesus. Um, you'll see various biographies of various people that are called to be kings and leaders and the like. But I think the dominant overarching view from God's standpoint is that of a shepherd. And, and so you'll see it over and over and over again. Um, Abraham had flocks and now he became more like a rancher. They had a lot of sub people overseeing his flocks, but he was a shepherd. And, um, and then you fast forward all the way through, even Moses uh, was out in the wilderness taking care of sheep. He was a shepherd. And then you see um, the most famous one would be David in the Old Testament where David watched over the flocks. And of course, even as a young boy, while he was watching over the flock, the story is told where Samuel comes to anoint the next king of Israel and uh, goes to Jesse's household, who is David's dad, and goes through all the brothers, but none of them are good enough in God's sight. It's the guy that's out in the field taking care of sheep. And there's a famous passage in there, of course, where it says that man looks at the outward, but God looks at the heart. And so God sees shepherds and esteems shepherds. And so even Jesus would say, I am the good shepherd. So, I mean, trump that one, right? Uh, if, if he views himself as a shepherd and he's a leader, we're following him. That's what we would want to be. Um, so biblically speaking, you see that language of a shepherd taking care of sheep, all the dynamics, of course, come into play in that. A, a shepherd, Psalm 23, David's psalm, leads the sheep to the water, leads this, the sheep through the valley of the shadow of death, leads them through, um, has leadership, feeding, cleaning up after them as a responsibility, all of those things. And, uh, and then ultimately, when God looks at our performance, he, he judges shepherds in a particular way, I think it's Ezekiel 33, 34, where God is looking at Israel, and at that point in time, a lot of the leaders, and that didn't just mean church leaders, but government leaders, people that were responsible for things in, in the nation of Israel at the time, had uh, abandoned their responsibilities, and the people were going hungry, and the people were hurting, and they were there, there was the economy was shambles, if you will, and the leaders were okay. They were okay, and God speaks to those leaders, and He says, "I have this against you, that you've fed yourself while your sheep go hungry, that you've not taken care of them." And so, the prioritization of of a shepherd leader in God's eyes is that He measures measures how the people under our care are doing, and. And so a shepherd-hearted leader is one in today's day and age where no matter what your responsibility is, no matter what you're doing, it could be, you could be the manager at McDonald's, you could be uh, the manager of your home and you got children. It, it could be a lot, but if God were to look at you and the things and the people under your responsibility, he wouldn't just measure your success, he, he would measure the people's health underneath you. Uh -huh. And that a shepherd-hearted leader doesn't think like a business leader 
or a leader that's going to use other people, a shepherd-hearted leader wants to take care of the people God has called you to lead. Oh, that's really good. So powerful. Even just take a second and think about how how impactful that is. Mm. is. When we look at, in today's society, a lot of people love to be called into leadership because they want to have some measure of success, to you know get their programs or whatever they feel that they need to do. Uh, leading people from the front instead of, you know, within the flock. I remember uh, Pastor Dennis used to say that the shepherd should smell like sheep. Yeah. Like he should be around yeah. them enough to smell like them. Um, over the past several years, we've heard about a lot of leaders who have fallen from grace. People who, you know, when you pull back the curtain, they were overlooking things. They weren't really caring for the sheep. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a lot of damage. What do you think are some of the dangers pastors and leaders need to guard against within their own hearts so they don't become someone who's not a shepherd-hearted leader? Well, this is a big topic. There's a whole podcast series around this um, that I've listened to. And, and, you know, the scripture says, take heed lest you fall. So nobody's above falling. Um, and I would just say, you use the phrase that's a common phrase, fallen from grace. Yeah. Um, we're never really falling from God's grace, but sometimes he allows us to be removed because we could hurt other people. And, uh, and you know, God will expose things, not because we are, uh, he's judging us totally and we're forever canceled, but because he cares about the flock, he'll remove a leader. Um, and then that leader gets to go through their own journey of grace. So I think uh, per the question about what are the things we need to be careful of and watch for, uh, I'm especially attuned to younger leaders who um, desire to do great things. God puts dreams in their heart. They don't yet know how that's going to happen, but then they immediately look at who who is getting celebrated right now. Who are the the leaders and the pastors and the speakers and the communicators and the influencers that are getting the spotlight? And, um, you know, there's great power in um, um, notoriety and fame because people think, well, if they're famous, wow, that's what I want to do what they do so I can be famous, too. Yeah. And this next generation really puts a lot into fame and yeah. being famous. Like well, it's modernized now. I mean, super important. I mean, yeah, there's actually you get money from it. Uh, the more clicks you get, the more likes you get, the more follows you get and all of that. So. The challenge in that is um, if the desire of your heart is to be esteemed, to be liked, and you, you do whatever it takes to get that, you can leave behind the whisper of God and the assignment from God somewhere along the way. And then you, you work so hard to get there. You know, I talk to church planters and church planting is not for the faint of heart. But if you plant a church, the hustle that you go through to get it off the ground, this personal sacrifice, the begging, the using people um, who aren't even saved yet to be a part of things because you're going to use whatever you got. And the beauty of that story is people that wouldn't ordinarily go to church end up finding Jesus. And there's so many amazing things mixed in that. But then there's also some danger hidden in that because once the church is off the ground, and you could parallel that with once your ministry is off the ground, once people know about you, 
now that things are moving along, it doesn't take as much energy to keep it moving. And then you can begin to settle into it being all about you. Narcissism becomes a part of that where it's all about you. And then you could look uh, at others as either people that will benefit you or a threat to take it away from you. And then it becomes all about you. And so I think that from a, it's a dangerous thing to be in that mode because now you're using people for the your benefit instead of shepherding people for their benefit and it's a it's a pivot it's actually away from the heartbeat of god and the truth is there's going to be pain either way um uh, what goes up does come down and uh people aren't going to be with you forever um you know i have a belief that i don't own the people that serve on our staff i don't own their calling um that's Jesus. They're called to the voice. I am gifted with them be, being a steward while they're on our team. So, but what if they leave? Yep. Are you abandoning me? No, it's, sometimes it's you know? hard though. You get attached well, and if to you're, if narcissism is at the core, yeah. then you will interpret anybody who leaves as they rejected you. Mm-hmm. Instead of blessing them, you kind of withhold it. And I've watched leaders who who they love people as long as they're with them and sacrificing with them. But as soon as they leave, they're like, they're dead to them. Yeah. And, um, and that shows they're not a shepherd hearted leader. Cause it's a lot of ego. Yeah. Think, that ego gets things. in the way. Um, people want the, the fame and what if you don't get it? And the truth is most people don't get it. Or there's always somebody that's more popular than you. There's always somebody that others people, other people will follow and I, you know, and that's a matter of the heart. It's in, it's on the internal part of your world. And between you and God, you got to wrestle that out. If you hide it in your heart, it can become, you can become a Saul where you end up throwing a spear at the Lord's anointed. Oh, wow. You could become something you, you used to n- never dream that you would become. Yeah. So we'll wrap this part of our discussion mm-hmm. up right now. But I just wanted to ask you probably one last thing is, you talk about faithfulness versus famous. Mm-hmm. Maybe just touch on that and and mm-hmm. how can leaders keep narcissism out of their heart? So faithfulness um, is the most esteemed character quality that you see that Jesus represents. You know, um, when he, he talks about reward, he uses the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. So faithfulness does not mean famous. It may never be noticed. Faithfulness is just doing whatever God has called you to do. And um, so your target has to be obedience to whatever God wants me to do, not what others want me to do or what other, others will applaud or get celebrated. It's just doing what Jesus wants you to do. And so... And, you know, I love the, the phrase that uh, Pastor Benson taught me um, years ago and that his definition of success is, is to accomplish God's goals and God's timing and to stay true to that. Um, and if you're faithful, he rewards faithfulness. And um, I think the biggest thing that we can do is pursue that, not chase fame. Fame is fleeting. It's like grabbing a puff of smoke. And uh, there's nothing there. 
at the end of it or trying to move a wet noodle up a mirror. It's impossible. Um, it's you're trying to do something that in the end isn't going to work. And I think if we could chase anything, let's just be faithful people. Lord, I just want to do what you called me to do and nothing else. And uh, that's good enough for me. That's so good. Well, thank you so much for sharing your insights on being a shepherd-hearted leader. And I look forward to asking you more questions.